Happy Monday. Hope you had a great weekend. Uh, we are back here on the Rocketeer Minute, a show where every day, Monday through Friday, we go over the greatest adventure movie Walt Disney's ever made, the 1991 Joe Johnston-directed movie, The Rocketeer. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm Hal Bryan, an airplane nerd from the Experimental Aircraft Association right here in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And now already more than a quarter of a, an hour into this movie... Uh, we are finally getting away from the opening scenes of, of just Cliff and uh, and Peavy and the, the folks down at Chaplin Field. Uh, after, after destroying uh, poor uh, Lucky Lindy out there in the bean field, uh, Cliff and Peavy are sneaking away in their pickup truck with, um, I, I'm not exactly sure what they're going to do with uh, seven-eighths of a, of a Lucky Lindy statue <laughs> that has a big divot taken out of his head. Yeah, you think maybe they're just going to sneak it back, put it in place, hope nobody notices. <laughs> Put a helmet on him. Yeah, yeah, some kind of a uh, you know Carmen Miranda out, you know, headgear or something. <laughs> something that took... Because nobody would notice a giant basket of fruit <laughs> on top of a statue of Charles Lindbergh. <laughs> oh, the... and and Jim, I'm hoping right now that anybody listening under the age of forty or so is busy busy uh, googling <laughs> Carmen Miranda. Carmen Miranda, who was he talking about? You know the guy. Get yourself some bananas. Look for the label Chiquita and look at the yes. lady behind the lo- uh, the logo. So. Uh... <laughs> Anyway, this is not about bananas. This is about the Rocketeer. So, uh, we finally, we're, so we're out of the bean field and we're getting uh, to a, a scene of who, for all intents and purposes, for uh, so far, these seem to be the bad guys in the show. I mean, we've had Wilmer and uh, and Lenny uh, seem to be the only bad guys we've seen so far, but these are apparently Wilmer and Lenny's um, middle management. Uh, so we're we're introduced to uh, two two characters, Eddie Valentine, and of course the. Uh, the movie star Neville Sinclair, but uh, before we get to them, the, we have to look a little bit at the location that they're at. If uh, if you'll notice, they're in a rather cathedral-like Art Deco basilica. <laughs> I'm not sure what to what to describe that uh, that set as, but uh, it's it's not actually a set. It's a it's a real life um, Hollywood house or a Los Feliz house. It's just below it's just below Griffith Park, uh, known as the Ennis House, and. Uh, Technically, it is uh, what they call a, a Frank Lloyd Wright house, although it, Frank Lloyd Wright d- made the original design for the building. Uh, his son, Lloyd Wright, kind of tried to finish the building, but it didn't It didn't really get uh, get set up the way that, that he wanted to. So uh, it, it deviated a lot, and the owners finally said, look, you know, thanks, but no thanks. We'll, we'll get, get you out of the way, and we'll finish up the design. And uh, But still, it, it still has elements of the Frank Lloyd Wright design. Well, it's amazing to think about about uh, you know, tampering with the design of his. Uh, you know, as a teenager, I read the book The Fountainhead, and oh, yeah. uh, the ma- main character was, uh, was an architect named Howard Rourke who was uh, not very transparently based on, uh, or maybe very transparently I, which adverb do I want to I want to hear, Jim? I, anyway, we're, we're very much based on on Frank Lloyd Wright, and uh, he was so particular about his designs. You know, the stipulation: if you change anything of the design, you know, the the deal is off. And the climax of that book is when he uh, when he blows up a housing project because somebody had the audacity to tamper uh, tamper with his original original design. So it always makes me wonder, you know, how how. Uh, how particular was was Frank Lloyd Wright about that in in real life and and uh, regardless it still seems like uh, you know architectural sacrilege if there is such a thing yeah it, it's strange I mean I've I've been to a couple of Frank Lloyd Wright houses and it is a beautiful design of of his his stuff his this particular house 
uh, does follow that that rule of hugging the the brow of the hill, or uh, or as it's, it's known in Welsh as Taliesin, which uh, is a, actually that's a very famous Wisconsin right. uh, landmark. But uh, th- that idea of just kind of merging with the landscape and not standing apart from it uh, is, is evident in this particular house. Um, Frank Lloyd Wright, he, he was very, he seemed to be a very determined guy. I, I used to live near a, a house in Virginia of his called the Pope Leahy House. And uh, it was designed to, not only was it a Frank Lloyd Wright house, it was built as if Frank Lloyd Wright was going to live there. He was not a very tall man. So all of the uh, the lentils in the rooms and the, uh, I know the carport, when you get out of your car, I'm, I'm over six foot and I, I, it's really easy to bang your head if you're not, say, about 5'7", five, 5'8". So he, 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 uh, when I was, when I was there on one visit, a fellow that lived in the house, uh, when he was a kid, uh, was there and, and explaining, you know, what it was like living in a Frank Lloyd Wright house. And Frank Lloyd Wright didn't believe in, uh, storage spaces or closets. He thought of them as wastes of time when he, and a bedroom was just that it was a, a room where your bed was and little else. So, uh, they didn't really have a lot of room for things like skis or, you know, Christmas trees and stuff. And what they did was they gave up one of the bedrooms and turned that into a storage area. And then whenever Frank Lloyd Wright was on tour and he wanted to stop by and inspect, you know, his creation, they'd rearrange all the furniture and take all the stuff out of their storage and put it out in a shed in the middle of the woods outside of Frank Lloyd Wright's view. So they, yeah, for for a guy, <laughs> I mean, he's the he's the vendor and they're the customer. But they, the idea that the customers didn't want to upset him, maybe they were worried that he was going to blow the place up. That could be. Maybe they maybe they read the Fountainhead. Yeah. You know, it's funny you talk about the height uh, and you know having to duck and things like that. Maybe uh, maybe the Lindbergh statue could fit in that cardboard. Yeah. Now that, yeah. Uh, there's a divot. Now that he's, yeah. yeah. Now that he's been chopped a little bit. You know, there's a there's a Frank Lloyd Wright here uh, house right here in Oshkosh, just about oh. uh, maybe two miles from where I am right now. Wow. Um, I had to look up the name of it. It's called the Stephen B. Hunt Bungalow. And it's, you could fairly easily drive by it and not notice, but when you do actually stop and and take a look uh, from the sidewalk, because, uh, you know, I haven't yet mustered up the courage to go ring the bell and say, (laughs) can I see your house, please? This is neat. But uh, anyway, when you you look at it, you start, you see little elements of it, but it's a very modest little one story sort of stucco, uh, stucco place, but it's, but it's a neat little bit of, a little bit of history just down the road here. Wow. Yeah. It, I mean, there are interesting, interesting things to go. And, and yeah, that is the problem that not all of them are museums. You expect to be able to just, just kind of wander up. Right. And a lot of them are just like active buildings and stuff. I know, uh, uh, it, which is kind of testament to how long th- those things last. They're still, you know, usable as buildings. Anyway, this is, this is about the Rocketeer, not the, not Frank Lloyd Wright, but it's just an interesting background <laughs> in the, the set that we're, we're, we're staged here in. And we're meeting Eddie Valentine, who's, uh, we were going to find out later is the, He's the owner of a nightclub called the South uh, the South Seas, and uh, he also seems to do some dirty work for famous Hollywood stars like, say, Neville Sinclair. Right, and you know this first glimpse of Paul Sorvino, just as soon as you see him, you know exactly exactly who he is. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know, is just there's absolutely no no question. I mean, he could he might as well be wearing a sign that just says, "Remember you know, says you remember me in Goodfellas." That <laughs> yeah, exactly. It says mob boss, <laughs> and he's so amazing in Goodfellas. You know, first time I watched Goodfellas, I walked out of there sort of scratching my head, thinking, "Well, you know, if I if I met Paulie, I, I could probably do a, do a little crime here and there. It, yeah. it seems pretty reasonable. He seems like such a, you know, you, you just you want him to be your uncle." Yeah, I, I want to be in jail with him while helping to cut the uh, 
<laughs> cut the garlic and things like that. Exactly. It, just make sure it's the, the right slice. But yeah, he seems like a a, a great guy. You know, even except for the part that he seems to be a gangster, he seems like a great guy and probably is good to work for and uh, would uh, pal around with you. Um, right. Until he murdered you, but before yeah, that, but yeah, everything up to that point would be good. It was a great so, ride, yeah. yeah. You know, just before, excuse me, just before we started recording today, I was listening uh, just to a couple minutes of Paul Sorvino singing, which is oh. which is amazing. I, I didn't know until very recently that he he's an opera singer. Wow, I did not and, know that. Incredible, and it's you first you think, well, he's just you know he's sort of this uh, this this mob boss. He's a mafia guy. He's you know you don't see him singing, but then you think, well, big, kind of barrel chested uh, Italian baritone, and uh, it's amazing. He's uh, wow. it's absolutely stunning. There's a few little YouTube clips that I found very quickly. So I'm gonna have to look him up. That, that, that's amazing. I know he runs a he runs an acting school in uh, uh, in in Hollywood. Actually, I think it's in Westwood. Uh, he's very actively teaching uh, people how to do, you know, the craft of, of being an actor on stage. And he, everything I've ever seen him in, he's a very natural actor. He just seems to be, you, you believe the roles that he's in. He doesn't seem to be reading off lines. They seem to, they seem to be coming into his head and then he says them. It's just like, it's not his turn to do his side of the script. Right. Um, but a very enjoyable actor. And he does it, he does it really good right here. I mean, the first time we bump into him, he's already, you know, a bit, ticked off and he, he's trying to figure out why what's happening to all of his henchmen you know lenny's dead Wilma's was wrapped up like a mummy at county general and uh he's really mad at his client uh, uh, neville sinclair no matter you know he, he just figures it's neville sinclair wants to grab something that it was a you know it's some kind of a heist of something that he really wanted and it turned out to be a lot more complicated than uh, than what uh, eddie was expecting when neville first came to him right um and, you know, you're looking at this spot, too. We've got to introduce, before we get our first big look at, at, at Neville, or as we do, um, Eddie's got his henchmen with him. And, and you know, I love the names. One of them is Mike, and the other is Spanish Johnny. Spanish Johnny, yeah. <laughs> what, a, what a great name for just a, you know, a, a, a little mafia hood to yeah. have, this, uh, have this little appellation. And I just wondered if there's, like, non-Spanish Johnny somewhere in the country. Right, yeah, it's there. You know, maybe there's Portuguese Johnny. I don't yeah. Know. I Let me talk to Johnny. No, the other one. No. Yeah, no, the other one. Darn it. <laughs> Do you remember where he came from? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, in Spanish, Johnny has that beautiful pencil must. You know, he looks like Cesar Romero. On this thing. Yeah, <laughs> Just... exactly. He does. And Mike's over there chewing gum like mad. Yeah. Yeah. He's, 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 he's there just chomping away. And that's his uh, that's his business. And you wonder, you know, I, I want to think it's Beeman's. Oh, we yeah. We don't know. It's yeah, it's a hope. Uh, you know, and we we have to like trying to set the state. There is no Neville Sinclair in real life, but he seems to be patterned after um, a fictionalized, sensationalized version of, of a very famous movie actor at the time, uh, Errol Flynn. And Errol Flynn was known as a uh, you know he was a swashbuckling matinee idol. He uh, he's great. I mean, if you've ever seen Adventures of Robin Hood or, or Captain Blood and things like that, he and they'll, and they'll make references to this. They'll, they'll just change change the name slightly when, when they talk about his uh, his movies. He was this swashbuckling, suave, sophisticated, British-sounding guy with. Uh, he was he, he. I mean, he's 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 actually Australian, but he just has this good clipped British accent, and you're like. Wow, what a you know! He just seems to he should be entering every scene on a rope and um, exactly. yeah. with a sword That's... in hand, and and which you know fortunately he has here. 
And, uh, you know, he's got those great big uh, jodhpurs on. I mean, this, th- he's theatrical even at his house. And, you know, he, he obviously enjoys the, the look and feel of, of how he is in the movies, the, the character that he plays up on the screen. I just, uh, yeah, I, I love, I love this uh, this version of him. One thing that um, I don't want to give away plot points, but there, uh, Errol Flynn, after, long after he died in the in the eighties, uh, a fella named Charles Hagem, who was kind of a, a sensationalist, uh, I want to say a novelist, but uh, he's kind of like a yellow journalistic uh, uh, writer, and he writes uh, he writes a lot about like film stars and stuff. He wrote a he wrote a biography of Catherine Hepburn, for example, it was a big hit. But he's known also as a fabulous that he made up a lot of stuff. And one of the things that he talked about with uh, Errol Flynn is that he thought uh, Errol Flynn was a fifth columnist. He was a Nazi and he was working for the the, the Nazis uh, in Hollywood society and trying to um, recruit and uh, evangelize the uh, Nazi Nazi feelings in uh, in Hollywood, which utterly unproven. They, they try to make the idea that he, 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 despite the fact that he kept saying that he was a German agent, there was never any proof. All it was was Hingham's word, and there's really nothing, um, there's nothing documented about that. So, right. Well, and it, it's amazing. After he died, there were so many, uh, you know, sort of scandals or accusations or things came to light, and you know, you don't really know how much, if any, of it was true. Yeah, there was. Uh, uh, I, had, I had read just recently that L. Ron Hubbard's son had said that uh, that Flynn was really close to uh, close to his dad. And he was he wasn't a part of Scientology, but that the two of them were up to all sorts of horrible things, smuggling drugs, all kinds of things like this. Uh, there's rape allegations, all kinds of things, and you just wonder how much of it uh, could be true. And that you know, who, this Errol Flynn that we see on screen is. You know, is is a very flawed human being off screen, and how much of it is just you know people who look for feet of clay and their heroes? Yeah, yeah, but yeah, you know, we have to do is separate that. A lot of the stuff about Errol Flynn was fictional, and everything about right. Neville Neville Sinclair is fictional, but it it, it tells it tells well. Yes, it really, really does, and it was so great to see Timothy Dalton in this role, isn't it? I um, mean, he was he was at the height of his Bond Bond years. And I mean, you know, License to Kill and uh, Living Daylights are you know are surrounding all of this. And right, uh, he's just great to see. I mean, there's a couple of movies that I always associate him with. I associate him with uh, uh, with uh, the Living Daylights, and of course, uh, he's he was Prince Baron in uh, in the 1979 or 1980 movie uh, Flash Gordon. Oh, that's right. I'd forgotten about and, that. And he was—he was this guy. He was, he, he, I mean, he was—he was kind of a Robin Hood character. He had the green felt, you know, tights on, and he—he <laughs> he had that—that uh, that tree stump that you had to put your hand in to see if you were gonna, you know, get k- killed by poison. And and he was starring. You know, he was—he was in the same scenes with Riff Raff from uh, from Rocky Horror in in the Flesh Gordon movie. It was just what a great what a great scene. But, um, and he also played uh, played Rhett Butler. In kind of a uh, this mini series that was sort of a follow-on to Gone with the Wind, so it's funny you've got here you've got him playing a, a fictionalized Errol Flynn, but then in in this other thing he's he's recreating uh, you know Clark Gable's role, and so there's clearly something about him that uh, you know that we look at the way he moves, the way he looks, that we think you know he he probably could have been plugged in to the uh, the, the golden age of Hollywood and the well, right here in the 30s, like where the Rocketeer is taking place, and done just fine. Oh yeah, yeah, and oh. I, yeah, and the thing is that I mean he's 
He's in a lot of movies where he's the good guy, but he just plays such a great bad guy. Oh, he's fant- yeah, fantastic as a villain. And, <clears throat> you know, I think there's something in that quality. When he when he took on the role of uh, the role of James Bond, he's I mean, he's one of my favorite Bonds, absolutely. And this was the one of the first times in the franchise history um, that they really tried a more serious uh, sort of reset, you know, get back to the early Connery films and, and more importantly, get back to Ian Fleming's books. Let's make it a little bit more grounded in reality. Let's make it a little bit more serious, a little bit darker. Spycraft, and, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, uh, you know, you've got Sean Connery, who I've always described. He has this sort of a brutal savoir-faire about him, and uh, and he'll always be the best to me. So that's the end of that discussion. Thank you for having it. But uh, but when Dalton came along, and, and he really did bring something strong. I liked a lot of Roger Moore's movies earlier, the better generally. But Dalton came along and thought, this is a tough, strong guy. I I believe him. This is a James Bond that could exist in, you know, in this real world. Um, you know, at Living Daylights in particular, License to Kill got a little bit more fantastic. But then again, he got darker and grittier in that film as well. Yeah. And a lot of the a lot of the criticisms of the Dalton Bond was that he wasn't um, he wasn't as humorous. I mean, every time he right. gave a joke, the jokes kind of fell flat, which was. I, it was definitely not Dalton because Dalton knows how to do comedy. If you've if you've seen uh, uh, Hot Fuzz, where he plays uh, Simon Skinner, in oh in, sure in that movie, he's uh you know he's a villain, a perfect villain, but his nefarious schemes and stuff getting uh, getting thwarted by si- Simon Pegg, especially in the, uh, the the climax of the movie, which is basically Godzilla <laughs> set in <laughs> set in Britain, and uh, you know it's just so and. and uh, he's really just great with physical comedy, and I, I I love watching Dalton. Is what I'm what I'm trying to say here in summary. Yeah. and it's a fantastic introduction to the character just in this first minute. Well, throughout this whole this whole scene, and we see you know a little bit more movement and action from him over the next couple of minutes. But he's one of those guys that he's just uh, he's absolutely comfortable in his own skin. Uh, you know, is the, the the wardrobe is great, a very very swashbuckling, slightly uh, you know slightly baggy shirt and high waisted pants. It just, um, it just as he uh, everything as he moves, it's just it's it's elegant, it's economical, everything else. And you've got, you know, Sorvino is immaculately dressed as well, but he's, you know, he's he's very snugly fit into this, uh, you know, into into the perfect uh, sort of mob boss uniform there of that yeah. suit. And it's it's funny to see the the contrast uh, contrast between how 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 they were costumed for this scene. Yeah, he he is definitely a a '30s mob mob boss guy, right down to the uh, you know the the bowler that that he wears in in, in scenes. He's the thing about uh, Dalton Sinclair is that he the way that Dalton present every. Every word that comes out of him is extremely theatrical. He chews on the last couple of – it's almost Shatner-esque the way he just drops those – you know, the, the right. sentence where he just ends. He goes, you know, I, I, it's what I pay you for. Now, where's the package? He just – the delivery is like – I don't think they had to do it. They didn't have to do a take two on that. He just – he knew he knew exactly how to handle it. <laughs> no. And, um, you know, most of this is about Eddie finding out that it's more than just the, the package that – all he knew was a package. It was a box that they had to deliver, but he didn't know what was in it. And uh, Eddie delivers the ultimatum that it, you know, unless you tell me what this, is, what's going on, I'm going to the feds. And uh, and Sinclair finally relents and tells him it, it's a rocket. And 
And Eddie, Eddie's like, you know, of all the things that he thought that uh, Sinclair, you know, it's, it's diamonds, it's a gold brick, it's a, uh, you know, it's somebody's, it's right. the, the head of his, you know, dreaded enemy or something, a, a rocket. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, Sinclair at the at the very end of this uh, this minute says, yeah, yeah, like in like in the funny papers. Well, he doesn't say like in the funny papers, but he just he, that we'll find out. Uh, he, yeah. he has a line that we find, yeah, the right next at the very minute. beginning, we'll say, we'll, the next minute. Uh, yeah, these we'll, minutes we'll, broke perfectly right here. It's just, you just, yeah, and he's got that that smile he's he gets is really yeah. very disturbing, and he and we see that more than once from and uh, from yeah, Neville Sinclair through the like movie. And it's kind of highlighted he's, by that that pencil mustache too. It's like just the teeth and the yes, uh, exactly. He's very cat-like, right? And he's he's smiling too big, and you know, sort of laughing too suddenly and too yeah. quickly for something so awkward. Um, um, you know what I uh, just as we're we're getting toward the end of the minute when you've got Sorvino's line as you said you know a rocket and he's he's surprised and you can tell he's surprised even though he's not he's not overdoing it at all. Uh, Mike in Spanish Johnny just the way they're moving behind him sort of peeking over his shoulder and they're kind of you know they they've been about to leave now we're turning around they're just they've got this activity back there it almost they, they're like mafia yeah, backup they're, they're the singers at this of, point. <laughs> It's really funny yeah. through there. <laughs> okay, we're we're old. Okay, so uh, again for the younger uh, younger set, you're googling Carmen <laughs> Miranda and now Gladys Knight and the Pips, so you know who who, who they are. But uh, uh, it just that that delivery that line, you know, just yeah, just a rocket. It's enough to stop him and turn him around. He's not waving his arms. He's he's still perfectly economical and every you know very very buttoned down, but. But you know that, as you said, it is absolutely yeah, and, not and what rockets he was at the time. You know, although we we've talked, I mean, we'll talk some more about the, the comic the comic books tomorrow. But rockets in 1938 didn't match up. When we when we say rockets, we're thinking you know Apollo, Saturn V. We know what a rocket looks like. We know what a rocket launches like. We know what their purpose is in the world. Um, you know, it, it, as as projectile missiles, uh, they're they're very scary, but. At the time, rockets were either something that you saw, as we'll find out tomorrow in, in comic books, or they were silly little hobbies that people were playing with. Uh, just set the stage a little bit here, in, in, especially in America. When you think about uh, American rocketry, uh, everybody, we, are the only, we are the only country in the world that has a national anthem that mentions rockets. So uh, rockets at the, rockets from way back in uh, in 1812. Let's let's go with a brief history of the of the, of the rocket. And yes. in the late 1700s, a uh, uh, there was a there was an Indian uh, an Asian Indian uh, sultan known as uh, Tipu Sultan, and he had come up with a, a method of uh, building bamboo uh, bamboo projectiles filled with. Uh, uh, gunpowder and uh, mounted on stakes that could fly two miles and hit targets and and explode with shrapnel that would kill, in this case, British soldiers in a radius of about thirty feet. They were massive. They were massive terror weapons, really. The uh, the British encountered this in the 1790s in in India and were prom promptly uh, well. They did one thing. They 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 picked up and and got the hell home. And tried to figure out what to do. A fellow named uh, Congreve, William Congreve, uh, examined Tipu Sultan's uh, rockets and figured out, well, you know, instead of making them out of bamboo, if we made them out of metal and uh, and built a, a long stake at the bottom 
uh, improve the gunpowder that was used in it, a smokeless powder, a, a more powerful gunpowder. Uh, they could be effective projectiles. So uh, the British did two things then. They, they improved on the, the Indian design of a rocket, and then uh, they came up with another idea where they took, uh, uh, they, they took ships, they took the, the masts off of them, they, uh, they loaded them with these Congreve rockets and would tow them to coastal cities that they were at war with and shoot the rockets off in a, you know, like a fusillade of maybe three or 4,000 rockets. And uh, the, these ships that were massless ships were called rocket ships. In the War, the war of 1812, one of the sidelines of it was that the British took a, a, a couple of these rocket ships, towed them up and down the east coast of the United States, uh, and launched missile attacks on Alexandria, Virginia. They launched them on uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, this was in September of 1814. They, uh, they finally decided to attack Baltimore. And uh, they, they dragged uh, one of their larger rocket ships, the Erebus, uh, was brought up with uh, over 3,000 Congreve rockets to attack a, a redoubt that was built on an island uh, in the middle of Baltimore Harbor. Uh, they launched 3,000 rockets at this, uh, at this redoubt. Uh, the problem is, is that the, even though the rockets were a little bit longer, they, they had a little bit longer range than the guns at, the, at that fort, uh, they, they would have a tendency to weathercock. They'd fly toward the wind rather than toward their target. So uh, most, mostly the, the rocket attacks were ineffective. And uh, thanks to Francis Scott Key, uh, the idea that rockets were any kind of a menace you know, was dashed. And, we, and we, we still sing about that at the start of every ball game. <laughs> But uh, you know, if you if you remember the, the song that uh, you know that uh, by the dawn's early light, you know a after the rockets' red glare, uh, everything was still was still standing, even flags. So they were considered a very ineffective weapon, and that that kind of idea lasted through lasted through the Civil War. Uh, it lasted through parts of the of World War One, and um, it also lasted in in the ideas of uh, of Americans of uh, who had looked at rocket pioneers our most famous rocket pioneer being uh, robert goddard in uh i'm sorry if i'm going long and off but this is this is this is this is in my wheelhouse no, right ahead. um absolutely uh ladies and gentlemen jim o'kane is actually a rocket scientist i got the paper on my wall and everything <laughs> he can prove it so uh let's just go on a little bit about robert goddard robert goddard uh great american scientist physicist uh worked in worcester at, uh, at Worcester, Massachusetts, at the Worcester Polytechnic Institute, where he taught physics. Uh, he was also a great experimenter um, and uh, came up with America's, uh, actually the world's first liquid-fueled rocket. He figured out that if you take fuel and add a huge oxidizer to it, like, say, liquid oxygen, you could get a lot more bang for your buck with uh, liquid fuel rather than just something like um, yeah, gunpowder. So he built, a, he, he built a lot of rockets and tested them. Um, the New York Times had uh, interviewed Robert Goddard about you know, what are the possibilities for uh, for rockets. He said, well, you know, if you take a rocket and give it enough fuel, you could probably hit the moon. You could, you know, go send it up to the moon. And uh, the uh, New York Times, after, after having that interview, they wrote a very scathing editorial, which is kind of pointed – pointed out as a, a bad idea to attack somebody in, in the science community. Um, the New York Times had 
posted saying that Robert Goddard lacks the common sense that's ladled out every day in high school because how can you use a rocket in a vacuum when uh, you know there's nothing to push against? Nothing to push yeah, against. So, yes. Uh, the, the New York Times did retract that uh, that editorial on uh, July 16, 1969, the day that uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz and uh, and Mike Collins went to the uh, the moon. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so thank yeah. goodness that uh, yeah that they eventually corrected themselves. Um, yeah. Let me hop back sure. just super super quickly, quick little tangent. Uh, uh, you're talking about Fort McHenry and, you know, the Star Spangled Banner and everything else. Um, one of the things that absolutely blew my mind on my first trip to D.C. about uh, 15 years ago was that uh, that the flag that uh, Scott Key wrote the poem about, the Star Spangled Banner, actually survives. Yeah. It's huge, and uh, it's undergone a tremendous conservation and, and mild sort of restoration process. And so my first visit there, you could sit there and watch, you know, people on scaffolding with this thing laid out on a big flat surface with their uh, white gloves and hairnets and things working on it sort of thread by thread. But that was just uh, incredible. You, know, you grow up knowing that song. You don't really think about a single individual flag that inspired it and that it actually survives. And they also have you can actually touch some of the uh, quote unquote bombs that burst in air. So uh you know, be sure to check out the Smithsonian next time you're in DC. Yeah, and I uh, guess that's that's their that's their free advertising. Yeah, if if you go to the um uh, the Air and Space Museum's uh, annex out out by Dulles Airport, the uh, Udvar Hazy, am I saying that right? Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, Udvar Hazy has a has a great collection of Congreve's uh, early rockets and later rockets. You can see the improvements as uh, weapons of death. Um, it's also uh, interesting. Quickly, you know, we started this uh, this minute talking about uh, talking about Lindbergh, and Lindbergh and Goddard became very very close. Yeah, uh, as, as you you know, probably far better than I do. But they, uh, you know, they were sort of close for life. And uh, and in speaking of people who may or may not have had some sympathies uh, with uh, the Germans at this point in history, um, at at the time this movie is taking place, uh, this is October 15, 1938? Yes. The night of the, right night of the 14th there? into the 15th, yes. Okay, 14th into the 15th. So while this movie is taking place, uh, Charles and Anne Marl Lindbergh are in Germany. And uh, about uh, four, three or four days from now, Lindbergh is going to be uh, sort of awkwardly given an award by Hermann Goering of, uh, of the Luftwaffe. <laughs> and he accepts it, but he's not really thrilled with it and uh and that really was one of the things that started uh started sort of tainting his reputation complicating his reputation uh at home as uh you know in this stage we don't really you know there, there's a lot of mixed feelings about the the clouds of war looming on the horizon and all that Lindbergh being a very very prominent america first let's not get involved in foreign wars and so interesting that we we start with this statue. Now we're talking about Goddard. Goddard and Lindbergh are close. And and again, right now in the context of what's happening in the movie, Lindbergh is over in yeah, Germany. Yeah, and we'll be in in upcoming minutes. We'll be talking about more more of the the political situation and the and the popular situation that was going on with uh, America, America's right. attitude toward the war in Europe and everything going on over there in 1938. Where we'll we'll get we'll get into that very shortly. But uh, yeah, and and Goddard after that 1920. Uh, uh, article, you know, disparaging article in the New York Times. Uh, Goddard decided, you know, the hell with <laughs> the hell with making any kind of public claims about about this stuff. He was going to go with doing some more research. Unfortunately, you know, finding a friend in in Lindbergh, and um, 
I think uh, Guggenheim was the other fellow that was, he was the money man uh, that had helped fund, well, Lindbergh had put him together with, with a couple of people with money uh, to f continue to fund his research in both uh, rocket propulsion and, uh, and more importantly, navigation and the idea of uh, having a gyroscopic control of where the rocket was going besides just where the wind was going to blow it uh, was, was a really important part. American uh, American rocket technology and the American government, after that experience of the War of 1812, had been tainted by rocket technology. They didn't think of it as anything important. So it was kind of pushed to the back corners, just as uh, we had discussed earlier that uh, Billy Mitchell had been ignored for a strategic bombing. Uh, Goddard's uh, people ignoring Goddard in the government well, would pay for it later, because even though America wasn't interested in these things, uh, there was an amateur rocket group in Germany uh, who was fascinated by all of these um, uh, developments of Goddard, who fortunately, well, unfortunately for him, but fortunately for these uh, folks in Germany, uh, published uh, extremely detailed uh, engineering drawings in their pat in his patent applications of how to build a, a turbine pump and how to build a, a supercharger so you could feed fuel through, you, you fed fuel through the outside of the, uh, the, the engine bell. Of, of his rockets. Uh, one of the fellows that uh, read a lot of, of Goddard's stuff and, and also included a lot of uh, correspondence back and forth to Goddard was a, a young man named Werner von Braun. Uh, von Braun is uh, trying to find funding uh, for his, uh, his amateur rocketry experiments and uh, unfortunately found, uh, found a great deal of funding uh, through the National, Nationalist Socialist Party in, in Germany. Uh, von Braun is a very ambivalent moral character the more you read about him uh great uh great scientist and um just had just some questionable activities that he he was involved with but he understood the kind of work that goddard was doing and and managed to parlay uh, goddard's research into uh, active work on building much larger rockets than the the ones that the models that Goddard was constructing, and uh, we'll we'll talk about that later on uh, in newsreels to come. But uh, yes, um, you know one other last little thing about von Braun. I knew I grew up knowing his name from uh, reruns of the great Disney stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, uh, was it Man in Space? Was it Man in Space or Men into Space? There were two different series. I think it was Man, Man in Space. Yeah. And uh, it would be part of uh, the wonderful world of Disney. Uh, we'd see those in reruns in the early 70s. You know, of course, these were all from the 50s. But uh, but you'd see Von Braun coming out and talking and uh, and then showing all that great, like, Chesley Bonestell artwork, all that amazing, yeah. amazing well, and, stuff. In that, in that case, it was, uh, it was Ward, Ward Kimball, who was one of the, you know, the... Ah, right, one of the yeah, animators. And, and he did... Uh, so. uh, you know, it's it's fantastic work. It, it's available out there. I mean, they show it on the Vault Disney Show on on the Disney Channel. But you can also you can right. also get the entire collection. There's a there's the Man in Space, and then there's a, there's ones about the Moon, and also about the exploration of Mars. Um, but it's just fascinating to see that between that and the uh, the series that uh, Von Braun had worked on with uh, Collier's Magazine, that really pushed the right. And that that was the uh, Chesley Bonestell, um that's right. That's yeah. really where that artwork came into play, wasn't it? Was the was the Collier yeah. stuff? But anyway, it's funny here that there's this you know loose sort of series of connections that brings us back to Disney, and here we are, uh, here we are at least uh, occasionally talking about a Disney film when, yeah. <laughs> when we don't wander off in our own uh, own it's world. It really is stunning how many different uh, confluences happen in this one. I mean, we've, we've talked about Hollywood, we've talked about 
spacecraft. We've talked about uh, weaponry and, and pretty much the history of the United States, all in this, and, and Errol Flynn too. And, so, and architecture yeah. and and opera. So yeah. So, I mean, this is no you know this is no vacuum cleaner minute, no. which I think everybody can agree is a <laughs> yeah, classic. Yeah, that's true. That was a classic episode. It was, it was, but, it was thrilling. But yeah, but we, we cover a lot of ground just in this one minute, which is a great reason of why we do these as a minute by minute basis. It's it's funny. A lot of people, when you first explain to them they've never heard of the movies by minutes concept, you're like, why would you watch a movie like that so slowly? But it's because there's so many things to talk about in each minute, and uh, and here we are just on a on an average Monday talking about one average minute of this show. Well, we've got a we've got a lot of minutes to to cover in the future. So let me let everybody get off their treadmills or wherever you're listening to this in your car or jogging down your street. Um, and uh, you can pick us up here tomorrow on Tuesday, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about more about where rockets were familiar to the uh, the uh, the public eye. Uh, but we'll we'll talk about uh, that tomorrow. If you would like to talk with us on social media, we are always available in so many different forms. Of course, at Twitter, we are available at uh, Rocketeer Minute. And on Facebook, look for the Rocketeer Minute's Bulldog Cafe. I'm sorry, the Rocketeer's Bulldog Cafe. That's out there. Everybody gets together and chats. And we post a lot of other things like uh, pictures of uh, production shots, uh, other pictures of old aircraft at the time. I am sure that uh, while we're talking about this, we're going to see a lot of pictures of uh, Frank Lloyd Wright architecture and and uh, Robert Goddard uh, images. So uh, check out the uh, the, Rock- the Rocketeers Bulldog Cafe on Facebook, and uh, last but not least, the great big website RocketeerMinute.com, where you can get all your back episodes. And uh, there's some cool swag about uh, you know all things Rocketeer that's available through Amazon. It's right on right on our uh, shopping uh, subsection of uh, rocketeerminute.com but check that out if you haven't already we're three weeks in or two two weeks in uh no this is the third week this is the beginning of the third week um please please go to uh either itunes or google play search for rocketeer minute uh, click subscribe and you will have this uh show delivered hot and fresh every morning actually the night before right to your uh, mobile device and if i may interject uh, by all means, please leave us a review. Uh, if, you, if you're enjoying it, if you've got, to, got feedback, any kind, uh, we'd love to see re, uh, reviews on iTunes. We'd love to see the comments on the social stuff. Let us know how we're doing so, uh, so that we're not just shouting into the that void. Would, that would help a lot. Uh, a lot of people ask him. We really do need to give a good shout-out to uh, the amazing Tom Geyer, who uh, he's doing our end theme that you're hearing playing under us right now. Why don't you join us here next time tomorrow, Tuesday, on uh, the Rocketeer Minute. So until then, over and out. Go get him, kid.